Podcastle episode 197 for February 21st, 2012. Destiny with a Blackberry Sauce by David J. Schwartz. Rated R for violence. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle, your weekly fantasy fiction audio magazine. I'm Dave Thompson and don't run away, but today we have a story for you about prophecies and chosen ones. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Sure, I've read those epic fantasy tomes myself, but for me, the real turning point where I was all screw this prophecy and chosen one stuff was Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace, where, spoiler alert, Sam, there's too many Jedi on this Jedi Council, suggested that Anakin Skywalker just might be the one prophesied to bring balance to the Force. One thing I do dig about that scene was how after that Samuel L. Jackson was all, we don't have time to deal with this prophecy now, we gotta worry about the Sith and the Trade Federation. Ugh. As it turns out, Anakin Skywalker probably was the Chosen One, which totally sucks, right? I mean, considering what he did to get there? Everyone's always complaining about how he killed the younglings and how awful that was, but let's not forget about all the poor Tusken Raider children he slaughtered in Attack of the Clones. Horrible, right? But this is how the Force and prophecy works, people. Lots of people die, yeah, but it's all good in the end, because then we get glowing-go-lucky Anakin sitting around the bonfire with Yoda and Obi-Wan at the end of Return of the Jedi, sorry, spoiler alert, smiling at his son. All those acts of murdering children? Forgiven. Such is the power of fulfilled prophecies. And unnecessary backstory. With that in mind, Podcastle's proud to present this week's episode, Destiny with a Blackberry Sauce by David J. Schwartz, originally published in Strange Horizons. David J. Schwartz is the author of many short stories, including The Somnambulist, which we ran back in episode 112, as well as the Nebula-nominated novel Superpowers. He lives in St. Paul, Minnesota, and is subject to change without notice. Our reader this week is Daniel Fawley, a freelance illustrator, storyboard artist, and writer. He's seeking further voice acting opportunities, so if you want to contact him for your reading needs, drop him a line at Nergal, that's N-E-R-G-A-L, 67, at Hotmail.com. Well, as my old friend Benjamin Linus used to say, Destiny is a fickle bitch. But don't let that keep you from enjoying the story. Destiny with a Blackberry Sauce by David J. Schwartz. One. Why my brother is not a guard. During my brother Mel's final test to become a guard, he performed a flourish with his halberd and cut off his left foot. You wouldn't think it was possible to slice your own foot clean off while you're standing on it, but he managed. He says that he didn't really feel any pain at first, but he did feel the tendon in his leg rolling up like a window shade. My parents were mortified. My dad just set his jaw like he does when he can't yell at us right exactly then, and my mum covered her eyes. Me? I watched the whole thing. There was a lot of blood, and of course Mel was screaming. They say you're not supposed to, that it makes a bad impression on the test officers, but I'm pretty sure I would have too. 
Then the healer came over and made an incision in the back of my brother's leg. He reached in and found the tendon where it had gone into hiding and pulled it down to where it belonged, chanting the entire time. Mel was screaming a lot louder by then. Five minutes later, the foot was reattached. It's pretty much as good as it ever was, but Mel still has nightmares about the pain. Not that I'm the least bit sympathetic. If you ask me, he did it on purpose. Two. Why we even have a guard in this town that no one cares about, including half the people who live in it? If you walk west for about five days, three if you eat on your feet, you'll come to the road. And if you manage to catch a ride there, you can make it to the river in a week. We have a river here called the Trickle. Even going over the 40-foot falls outside town, it manages to seem lazy and quiet. But the river to the west is so big that everyone says it with a capital R, like it's President River or Mother River, or something that you have to be careful not to piss off, even though it's that far away. There's a ferry across the river, apparently, and if you cross it and catch another ride to the mountains, about two weeks away, and find a way over the mountains, the road used to run through a tunnel, but it's been caved in for as long as anyone can remember, and find the right valley somewhere in those mountains, you'll be in enemy territory. So you can understand why we need to be vigilant. Three, career options in my town. There are basically three career options for kids in our town, the guard, the church, or the family business. That's because there are too many kids. If you have three kids, like my parents did, then one of them has to go into the church and another one has to go into the guard. If you have seven kids, like the Malbergs, then you have to send three to the guard and two to the church. Three is not very many kids for our town. A long time ago, supposedly, some people had trouble even having one. Nowadays, most people have three or four at a time. I wasn't there, but from what I understand, my parents were pretty embarrassed when they had just one the first time. That was my older brother, Gil, and he was the only only in town. He's only in a lot of ways, and maybe even more so after my brother and I were born. Twins. My parents were so relieved. I think we all knew Gil would go to the church. He used to spend a lot of time alone thinking, which made people uncomfortable. No one here would ever say that they're against thinking, not out loud, but I think that some of them think it. Four. About that third option. My dad is a carpenter. He builds cradles and chairs, and every once in a while he works on houses. He likes the work, and I've helped out enough to know that I wouldn't mind it either. The trouble is that there are three other carpenter shops in town, so it's not enough just to make a chair that looks good and will last for 40 years. You have to read the customers' minds so you know exactly what kind of lathe work they like or what sort of stain is going to go with a new rug they just bought. That's what Dad says whenever he loses a sale, that he supposes he should have gone into reading minds. Once or twice a week we all hear about it during dinner. He really wants us to feel sorry for him, so he usually gets up and paces while he talks about it. Mum makes a lot of sympathetic noises, but Mel and I just eat. Dad never goes out hunting or fishing, 
Sometimes when the shop is closed, he just sits on the porch and stares. I don't know what he's staring at. I wonder sometimes if he was always like this, or if he changed after his brother and sister were sent away, or what. 5. More about my brother Gil, the one who does not actually appear in this story. Gil went off to the monastery when he was 15, and we haven't seen him since. That's how the church works, pretty much. Kids go into the monasteries and copy manuscripts and chant, I guess. And after about 40 years, they let a few out to minister to the villagers. This would explain why Reverend Force is grey and blinks and mumbles all the time, even when he's standing in front of a full house of worship. Even when he's alone, he mumbles. Personally, I don't think the church much cares about us, as long as we keep sending them fresh blood. But when I ask questions about things like this, Mum starts making sounds that are not exactly words, except they get louder and louder until she's basically shouting at me with throat clearings and aggressive hums. Anyway, it's been six years since Gil went away to the monastery, but last year I got a letter from him. At least it might have been for me. Like I said, my brother and I are twins. But I think I forgot to mention that we are identical twins, and this is not a very common thing in our town. Multiples, yes, but not identical ones. The only other ones in town are the chess girls, who are 67-year-old triplets. And Gil never could tell me and Mel apart. He was always starting up conversations with me, except that a minute in I'd realised that he thought he was continuing a conversation he had started with Mel. Not that it mattered very much, because talking was just another way of thinking for Gil. Six. More about the letter. The letter, like a lot of Gil's conversations, had to do with the enemy. Gil was kind of obsessed with the enemy before he went to the monastery, and judging by the letter, it's only gotten worse. The letter, which is written in this really flowery script, so I guess his penmanship has improved since he went away, said he had read some prophecy about a chosen one, and that even though it was vague and cryptic like prophecies are, Gil was sure that it was referring to our village and our family. The twice-born brother of a lonely scholar was part of it, and even though that sort of describes our family, I wasn't convinced until I read the part about the signs, especially the part about the beasts and birds. 7. Some birds talk too much. Birds have been talking to me since I was seven years old. I was hunting, or at least practicing in the hills outside of town, trying to follow the trail of a nice fat hare I'd spotted, when this bird started talking to me. Mostly about destiny, and some of the words I didn't understand. To be honest, I didn't listen for long before I shot it clean out of the tree. My first kill. It was a good-sized morning dove, and it made for a decent roast. A couple of weeks later, Mel came home with one, which was how I found out that they talked to him, too. They show up every so often, sometimes a couple of times a week, sometimes not for months at a time. We call them destiny doves. Turns out destiny tastes great with a blackberry sauce, but can't tell the difference between identical twins. I've learned one thing, though. And that's that there's no game easier to hit than a bird that is trying to talk to you. 8. A short conversation with destiny. Another thing that happened was that I caught this fish 
this gorgeous fat salmon, and it said that it would grant me a boon if I let it go. I said I was pretty hungry, so I'd pass. Besides which, I don't really even know what a boon is. But I didn't tell the fish that. Anyway, the fish started talking really fast and panicked and said something about my destiny again, and I got irritated. I said, tell me my name and maybe I'll let you go. I said, do you know I've got a brother that looks just like me? Maybe you're really looking for him. How am I supposed to take all this destiny talk seriously when you don't even know who I am? Long story short, the fish didn't know my name, but he was delicious with beans and rice. 9. How my brother and I learned cooperation. Finally there was the wizard. Mel saw him first, hanging around by the old mill at the bottom of the falls. It's a bit funny how Mel and I like to do the same things, but we don't do them together. We both like to fish at the bottom of the falls. We both like to hunt, but we like to do those things alone. It's just that when you're in town, you never get any time to yourself. So once you get out past the checkpoints, it's nice to enjoy the quiet. Anyway, Mel told me he was sort of dozing with his fishing pole tucked under an arm when he gets this weird feeling and realises there's this foreign man with a scraggly beard staring at him. Apparently the guy said something about a need and told Mel to come with him. So Mel sliced the guy's belly open with his boning knife and ran away. I didn't know about any of this when I met the wizard myself a little while later. I was chasing down a stag, and about the time I thought I had a shot, this old man limped into my line of fire. I guess he thought I was Mel coming back to finish the job. He did something with his fingers and the shotgun flew out of my hands. He said he was sorry, that he could see how I might have misunderstood the part about the need. His cloak was slashed and bloody, and he stank like a sweaty fish. But I didn't have my gun, so I had to just stand there and listen to him talk about how I was going to be a great leader in the war against the enemy and unite the lands. He wouldn't shut up until I told him I'd come with him. I told him I needed to get some things from home first. He didn't like that. But I made up a story about some shotgun shells of destiny that were under the mattress, and I think he bought it. About 20 minutes later, I came back with Mel and one of my other guns. The wizard were just sitting on a rock in a clearing, not expecting a thing. Mel and me are used to hunting alone, so we're both quick and quiet. We came from different directions, close enough so that there was no chance of missing. I hit him in the back, Mel blasted him in the face. Just to be sure, we cut off his head and his hands and buried them far away from the body. 10. Why something had to be done. Look. Maybe there are people who wait around hoping Destiny will come looking for them. But I'm not one of them. Especially when it turns out Destiny is as dumb as a rock. Mel and I were in agreement about this. Why would we want to go wandering off with some creepy wizard and start a bunch of trouble with people who have nothing to do with us? The only problem was one of us had to go into the guard. And the guard does stuff like marching off to the west and getting into fights. And that puts you just a few battlefield promotions away from becoming a great leader. Which is just asking for destiny to catch your scent and come slobbering up to you like some dumbass dog. When Mel volunteered for the test a year early, I should have known something was up. Sure, it looked like an accident. And sure, he'd only been training in the halberd for a few months. But I know my brother. He failed the test, of course. He can take it again in a year, but the instructors won't forget. 
No one who saw what happened will forget. And I'll be there next to him. And if I try to do something similar, it'll be obvious that I'm trying to sabotage my chances, and I'll be sent off anyway. That's the confusing thing about military service. If you pass the test, joining up is a reward. But if you get into trouble, it's a punishment. I could kill my brother, but that would mean getting rid of my buffer against destiny. And if they found me out, I'd be shipped off to the border anyway. I had a better idea. And when I mentioned it to Mel, he thought it was a good one too. 11. How penmanship turns out to be important. The crap of the whole thing was how much time we had to spend practicing writing. Mel and I both stopped going to school as soon as we were allowed, and neither of us cared much for books. But both of us spent our afternoons scrawling fancy script on any scraps we could get hold of, until my fingers felt like dry twigs about ready to snap. It was horrible! But by the end of a month, our penmanship was getting pretty good. Mel's was better, though, so it was him that wrote the letter. Well, fixed the letter, because it was Gill's letter, just with a couple of important changes. After that, it was a matter of sending it back to where it came from, and getting it into the right hands there, and then waiting. And waiting, and waiting. At least we could hunt again, although Dad was starting in on how we needed to start acting like real apprentices, because one of us would have to take over the shop someday. I wasn't worried about that. I already knew how to measure twice and cut once and hammer and glue and sand and varnish. I was worried about the letter. 12. The Chosen One is Revealed. It was six weeks before we heard anything. A priest actually came down from Two Rivers, Gill's monastery, to talk to Mum and Dad. They sent me and Mel out of the room. After about an hour, the priest left. He stopped on the porch to shake our hands, really slow and solemn, like he was proud to know us or something. When Mum and Dad came out, they were both crying. Dad was having trouble getting any words out, and I realised that he was crying because he was proud. He told us that the priest had come across a prophecy and that Gil was the chosen one and that he was going to save us all from the enemy. Well, Mel and I had to play like we were shocked but proud and then we had to deal with a lot of hugging and more crying and then Dad started singing patriotic songs so we had to sing along. We were stuck there for two days with neighbours coming by to pay their respects to the family of the big hero. The mayor made a speech and Reverend Force mumbled a blessing and everyone was generally pretty obnoxious about how hopeful and proud they were. 13. Work. We both thought Gil would kick up a fuss about what had happened, but based on the letters he sent, that doesn't seem to be the case. He wrote that when he first read the prophecy, he misunderstood it, but he sees now that he was just reluctant to accept his destiny. He's on the march with a big army. It looks like we're invading enemy territory now, or at least crossing the river and making a mess over there. To tell the truth, I haven't been paying that much attention to the rumours. I've got other things on my mind. Turns out yesterday Mel was over at the stables and everyone says he got kicked in the head by a mule. No one actually saw it happen, but ever since he's been talking gibberish and he just cries when he sees a book. Then last night he went to the shop while everyone was asleep and built a crib so fancy that the miller's wife ordered three more for the quad she's expecting. See, 
one of us has to take Gil's place up at the monastery, and it looks like Mel's a step ahead of me again. And welcome back. This one made me think quite a bit of Patricia Highsmith's Tom Ripley series, what with the forgery and getting away with murder and all. I'm pretty sure that wasn't accidental. However, I love the idea of someone like Ripley or Hannibal Lecter or, hey, even Anakin Skywalker as the chosen one, or at least shirking the responsibility of it. Oh, the wonderful mayhem that would ensue. What glorious, wicked fun. Somebody reboot the Phantom Menace already. Please. Alright, feedback this week is Daniel Abraham's Balfour and Meriwether and the Vampire of Kabul, read by Paul S. Jenkins. This was the second outing of Balfour and Meriwether Force here at Podcastle, and our listeners were a bit divided as to whether it was better than the last one or not. Unblinking said, It didn't have the novelty of the first one, and I was much more interested in the clockwork plague than in this guy, especially since Vampire was right in the title. You already had a pretty good idea where it was going. Fenric said, I thought this was a significantly more compelling story than the first. The first was very clearly a fantastic and otherworldly threat that was bent on the total destruction of humanity. The second outing was far more nuanced with the moral gray areas. There were also no white hats and no black hats in this story, just folks who think they know their color. Also, the line between the mystical, fantastic, and reality was more finely shaded with the opiates and parlor trickery of the antagonist. Mr. Bunny said, I like the moral ambiguity, no moral reversal in this. The protagonist fought not just for the Empire, but for monarchy everywhere, while the bad guy wanted to avoid useless war and protect the human rights of the Afghan people. Of Paul Jenkins' reading, Baloo said, if Morgan Freeman's the voice of God, I reckon Paul Jenkins is shoo-in for the other guy. Wow, thank you so much, everyone. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the stories we publish here, so swing on by forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought of this week's story. And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Your money goes to paying our authors for the stories we feature. Thanks. And we'd like to give a special shout-out this week to Derek Kunskin, our donor of the week. Derek dropped us a sweet little email with his donation, mentioning all the podcasts he listened to regularly, including The New Yorker, but promised us Podcastle was his favorite. How kind! Derek, on behalf of all of us here at Podcastle, we're pleased to make you our new chosen one. Good luck with that. That's our show for the week. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for letting all of us here at Podcastle share another story with you. We'll be back next week, taking you to another corner of fantasy. But in the meantime, pass the fava beans and Chianti and shotguns. See you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. 
And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. William Jennings Bryan said, Destiny is not a matter of chance. It is a matter of choice. It is not a thing to be waited for. It is a thing to be achieved. <laughs>